So a uh, couple months ago, I got a text at like 1.30 in the morning, and I don't even know if you realize that it was 1.30 my time. But your text said, I'm in Jerusalem right now, and we need to talk about this on the podcast. Uh, why is it that people feel the need to have to build all of these cathedrals and churches and temples on the site? Actually, here, I'll just, I'll just pull up the text message. Here's here's what you texted me at one in the morning. Okay. Okay. Why is there a modern desire to have the place of the nativity and the crucifix just as it was 2,000 years ago? The pre-modern slash Byzantine slash medieval desire to drop a church on top of a holy place. We want it just as it was because for us, faith is not rituals of enchantment, but something internal, something willed, something that can be denied as made up, which meaning belief, faith is located in our conscious or heart. We'd be strengthened in faith by seeing it just as it was. But if faith is located in ritual cults, then you fortify it by wrapping it in layers of symbol on top of symbol and enact ritual with it, etc. Hence, you need a church on top of a nativity. And I just read that in thing in its entirety because I just want the listeners to get a sense of the kind of text messages that sometimes you send me <laughs> at one in the morning. Um, yeah. So could you yeah. uh, could you unwrap that for me a little bit, please? We cashed in a bunch of our airline miles, so thank you all listeners who have me come to your church or your conference or whatever, and then, as you know, I'm very inflexible to only fly Delta Airlines so that I can cash in these miles and um, pay penance for my my parental absence by taking my kids to, to places to see the world. But we have an 18-year-old who is uh, getting ready to go off to college and has chosen to go to Seton Hall. He's going to Seton Hall next year, so that we're, we're excited and frightened about that. Um, but we decided that as his senior year is coming to an end, I mean, I say this slightly tongue-in-cheek, but not so much, that if our kids are going to be atheists, we want them to be good atheists, you know? Like, uh, I mean, I partly say that just to seem provocative, but at another level, I think there's something really true about faith formation, whether inside a church or, you know, as families pass on faith to kids, that uh, inside of this kind of secular age that we've discussed so much in this podcast, that it is really a searching, it is a, a really, uh, a searching kind of faith that you have to have, and it will always be up against doubt and fragilization, as we've talked so much about. So we have the sense, and I, I think this is quite true, that a lot of the unbelief that it exists today is... Um, or a lot of the claimed atheism, if you will, is unthought. I mean, there's just not a lot of thought put to it. It just is uh, is kind of absorbed. And so we felt like, you know, um, if our kids are going to deny the Christian faith, they're going to have to deny the depth of it, not some kind of cultural veneer, but the real depth of it. Like, they're going to have to go to Jerusalem. They're going to have to go. I, I get that this is a lot of privilege to say this, but it's all airline miles. They're going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to go to Istanbul, um, Constantinople, and then they're going to go to Rome, the three holy cities, and they're going to have to deny the beauty of Christianity from its kind of deep historical connections. So that was our plan with senior year coming, you know, like save up all these miles, save up all these Hilton points to, to cash them in and do that. So we spent, we, we flew to, uh, from, from JFK to, uh, to Tel Aviv and then just spent spent about five wonderful days in Jerusalem um, and it was it was you know from from the minute getting on that flight from JFK to, to Tel Aviv was a just 
an amazing cultural experience for, for all of us and particularly for my kids. But then we toured and we went to a lot of the holy sites in Jerusalem and you are kind of taken aback. You know, you go to the, the, the place of the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus that, uh, that a church is on top of the Holy Sepulcher that's been, uh, was, was erected and then has been, you know, um, um tore down and rebuilt and, and things like that. But you go to the, the, uh, there's a church, the nativity that's right on top of the, the cave or the house or whatever that, uh, Mary gave birth to, or as tradition says, and it, it is just really quite amazing how, how these, uh, these really Byzantine era churches. So we're talking, you know, kind of like fourth century, um, churches have been built right on top of this. And this all has a lot to do with, well, it's, it's interconnected with the Constantinian, um, kind of takeover and, uh, uh, of, of the, of the Roman, of the Roman empire. And then of turning it Christian, of course, which is a very deep contested point within at least American Protestants who have a deep aversion towards Constantinian Christianity, which, um, I think is actually over, over committed to. I think that we often make a lot of mistakes in that, not that Constantine was the perfect person, but he did do a lot of amazing things. And, uh, one of the things that he did is sent his mother to the Holy land. And, uh, the, the real creation of the relics happens with her, you know, like she gets word of where, where in Jerusalem, Jesus was crucified and buried. And, uh, it's now like under a bunch of pagan, pagan, uh, I don't know, spaces of worship or something. And she has them all kicked out. And then she finds this. And then she finds three crosses in this cave. And she runs a scientific experiment to figure out which cross is actually the true cross of Jesus. And if it is Jesus' cross. And she used, you know, the very scientific logic you would use in the fourth century. She took a sick boy. And the one that healed the sick boy was clearly Jesus's, you know, cross that he was crucified on. So what does she do when she discovers this when she's confident she has the cross well she takes it back to Constantinople and the cross itself becomes a relic and these pieces of it as it's divided and becomes a holy relic but on top of this place she builds a church and on top of all these holy places are these churches and I guess my point in my text was that it is really amazing because there's something inside me as an American Protestant who has a background kind of in a, a certain kind of late 20th century evangelicalism in some way and has spent my life even in in mainline American um, congregations and things like that, that what I yearn for, what I think would really bolster my faith is to see the hill just as it was when Jesus died or to see even more specifically, like to see the, the, the cave or the dwelling where Mary gives birth. Like I can see it, but there's this whole intricate church on top of it, like a huge church with a huge dome and, and all these, you know, intricacies of, of, um, mosaics or, you know, uh, other just like beautiful. I mean, it's be, the churches are beautiful, but there's part of me that does really wish it was exactly the way it was, or I feel like that would bolster my faith more. And again, I think that is because as my text so elegantly said to you at, at, at one in the morning, because I think for us, belief is a, is an internal not necessarily rational, but it's a willed thing. It's something that we kind of fight internally in our own consciousness. It's as something that do we consent to it and to see things just as they were, almost like a documentary would would bolster our faith. But that is not how a Byzantine Christian would think. That's not how um, even a medieval person would think. Um, that once you find the holy place, it, it calls you into 
a certain form of worship and you would need a church around it because this space itself doesn't kind of rebound to you that says, oh, it really did happen like this. You can, you can really trust it. What you need is to be taken into the symbol. What you need to do is be taken into the ritual and you need, like my, like my text so beautifully says, Derek, you, you need, you need a structure for that. You need a, you need a church for that. You need a place where a priest can, can lead you in the mass for that. Um, because again, belief is a more external thing. That's, that's practice than an internal thing. So the, the, the holy place is a very modern thing that for me, the holy place is like verification that it really happened, that I'm not stupid to put my trust in this or that there's, there's viability that I should trust this. Not that, um, the space itself is radiating with with a holiness, and that uh, that there'll be that there's a call into the symbolism of worship. Um, that that there needs it needs to be even wrapped in a structure to tell the depth of the story. Um, so yeah, that was that was our experience um, in Jerusalem. My dad turned uh, sixty a while back and both of us have have gotten into bourbon whiskey like over the last decade or so and so for my dad's birthday trip we took a trip to kentucky and went to all these distilleries and stuff have you have you been to kentucky on the on the bourbon trail at all no but this seems like a different this is, kind of this is holy my pilgrimage. holy pilgrimage <laughs> uh, i could take jerusalem or leave it but you get me to kentucky where there's wild turkey then absolutely but yeah. what's really interesting though and i learned this on the trip is all of these marketers who work in that space, they really try hard to harken back to this sort of like frontier ethos. So they have these brands named after these guys like Elijah Craig and Evan Williams and all of these like early pioneers. And they're leading you to believe that they have this um, product that is made exactly the same way as it was made in like the 1700s during the frontier days. When you get there, a lot of the romance is stripped out because you realize it's all these European conglomerates that have come in and taken over these companies, and it's literally just a factory-made product. But these marketers are trying to tap into this thing as Americans living today that we want so badly that this is how authentic it is, and this is how it was done back then. I, I kind of see some connection with what you're saying about the Holy Land, and I guess my question is, what is it about our age of authenticity where we sort of have this romanticized or nostalgic look on the past, and we so desperately want to experience things the way that they exactly were at the time. Like, what is it that we're missing in this day and age that that we're trying to grasp at? You know, whether it's in the faith arena or it's in bourbon or, or whatever else it might might be. That sort of like hipster yeah. authenticity sort of sort of thing. Yeah, I mean it's it's a fascinating it's a fascinating thing because I actually think that um, the hearkening back, the looking backward, is something that's just really deeply human um, to look back and to try to hold on to or to feel some kind of sense of assurance or even authority in what has come before. But I think one of the fascinating things about uh, so I think our looking back even at bourbon or at you know like the way baseball used to be played when it was played the right way or, you know, um, ESPN classic or something like that. All of this kind of looking back, I think is a certain echo of the way our lives used to be organized. I mean, it's really hard for us modern people to remember that for most 
at least within the within the, kind of the Western civilization or the civilizations that birthed the West. But I think beyond that, I think it's fair to say, though an anthropologist would have to to have to you know to to verify this. But almost all human civilizations before the modern project were backward looking, not forward looking. And we are pretty darn forward-looking people. And I do think we have these moments, much like enchantment, we, we need these release valves like Halloween to remember a certain kind of uh, world where demons and devils were everywhere. And there, there's a certain kind of comfort in having these spaces, almost these carnival spaces where we, where we remember that. I think there is a sense that, that certain forms of history do that. I mean, in a, in a Hartmont Rosa sense, he thinks that like these being taken into a museum or to kind of stand in a square or to go to go to Temple Mount, say, in Jerusalem and know that, like, this has been a place of worship for, my gosh, you know, since the time of David or something. Or in Jerusalem, you can go and they find this uh, this wall. They've, they've excavated this wall from Hezekiah, you know, so you're talking, you know, a, a pre-exilic wall and you're just like, holy crap. Like the time of that, it, 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 it does have a way of giving you a kind of sense of resonance, um, that, that, it, that is significant. But I think we look back because we're yearning for that and we, we hear an echo of that, but we, we struggle to, to stay there. Like, you know what I mean? Like we, there's a certain way that, even the past becomes somewhat touristic where we go and we can kind of have this kind of experience, this, this voyeuristic experience of the past can kind of feel a resonant connection to what has been, but then we can move on. And most of our lives are spent looking at like, how will, how will the markets even perform today so that my future is, you know, procured or, you know, like how, how do we just keep on looking, looking forward. And, you know, we, we even forget like, even for the Greeks, like Plato, Plato really believed that it was backward-looking more than forward-looking. I mean, that's why he writes this little fictional story that's still in our imaginations about Atlantis. You know, that Atlantis, the idea of Atlantis, it's fictional, though Plato kind of plays with it if, it, if it's fictional. And, and a lot of people for centuries after the writing of Atlantis have kind of believed it's true. And there's actually, what what is the, there's a Net, Netflix series that tries to argue that, um, that Atlantis was a real civilization that seeded all of our civilizations and why you see pyramids across the continents is because this is really the, there's something that Plato writes and I, you can see I'm not an expert on this, but he like writes of the, the, the enlightened ones or the wise ones or something. And so this is like journalist, uh, this British journalist has, has made this case that any, I think uh, legit historian thinks is absolute bullshit, but it is a great, documentary i think that guy does... was on joe rogan actually i think i saw that oh i'm sure he was yeah, it I mean, was this is total like... crackpot yeah 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 total i mean joe rogan loves that stuff you know yeah. um and, and and again not to belittle it you know because we would love to be on joe rogan if you'd invite us um it, it, there's something about kind of a resonance and a connection to even these stories i mean i think that's one of the reasons why conspiracy theories um just proliferate especially once you have the internet you know is because they do make you feel like there's some kind of hidden knowledge there. And that really was Atlantis, too, is the idea that there were civilizations. I mean, imagine this, you know, that there were civilizations that had advanced understandings of medicine, of building, of art that had been lost, that had been buried 
by you know the sands of time. And your job was to put stick your hand into the past more than care about the future. So I do think like going on the Bourbon Trail it, more than really a signal that we are past looking people. I think building a church on the Holy Sepulchre is a sign that there were once like past looking people who need that these these events from the past still radiated with with utter meaning. Um, but the Bourbon Trail I think is is a kind of haunting of what's been lost. Um, it's a kind of history that doesn't really need me to utterly commit to it. And you do see that even in Jerusalem, you know, like when you watch Catholics walk the Via Della Rosa and they like carry the cross and it becomes much more ritualized to be in that place. There is a much more of a, a kind of direct connection to uh, a more kind of Byzantine kind of sense of enchantment where when you watch Protestants, particularly uh, evangelical Protestants who populate the old city as well, they have a very different kind of perspective. Some of them might be carrying a cross or whatever, but you actually kind of find them in squares singing worship songs and, and, and things like that, you know, like they're, and why are they there? They're even there because they think the future is going to happen there, you know, like through that golden gate, Jesus is going to come. Like this is, this is where the return of Christ actually arrives. They're, they're turned towards the future. But when you see, you know, Catholic and Orthodox folks, they're still kind of looking back into the past and, and you can see why we would rather it not be, uh, a church on top of, of the, the place of the crucifixion because uh, we're, we're bent towards the future. You know what I mean? The, the, the past, um, the past has authority in some way, but you know, this is the weird thing with even how the fundamentalist takeover of reading the Bible has functioned that, that the text becomes kind of verification, almost a scientific verification that you can really trust what you internally consent to believe. Um, very different than the ritualization of, of symbol and in uh yeah that 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 functions for us I think it's really interesting this idea that you said about the difference between looking backwards and looking forwards and I'm almost wondering if some of the tension that we feel for those of us who are doing faith formation in this sort of mainline Protestant American context I feel like faith formation is rooted in that looking towards the past. And, and, and in the Lutheran Church, especially where I work, you know, you have this idea of confirmation and, and Christian education, and it's teach the kids the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, the, the uh, Catechism, all that kind of stuff. It is so backwards-looking um, in the sense of preserving these traditions and passing it on to the next generation. Meanwhile, the context you're working in is all of these suburban families, kids and parents that are living in this world that is just so uh, seeped in forward thinking. You're constantly thinking about what's coming next and your retirement account and your schedules that's coming up. And sort of, and I wonder if there's just some conflict there, too, or maybe that's a source of the tension that we're feeling in the church of, of going back to the title of this podcast, Why Church Isn't Working. Maybe some of that is that conflict between looking backwards versus looking forwards and how we operate. Yeah, and and I do think that we get deceived. I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast before that we're really not things haven't changed as much as we think they have, you know? Like there's a certain decadence more than an actual real radical change, you know, and we we mentioned how when you look at back to the future, like really 1985 to 1955, huge like change, but you really look 85 to 2015 or whatever, 
is that 30 years? Yeah. That, you, that the change hasn't been it's it, it isn't as radical of a change. But it's really hard for us to not assume that there is I think we're done with it, uh, progress narratives in the West. Like, you know what I mean? We don't think the world is becoming a better and better place. Actually, most people think the world is becoming, you know, shittier and shittier. It's becoming it's becoming worse. Um you don't have to you just look at how many dystopian you know, films and TV shows, but that's how most people feel. Um, but we still do, even in the midst of that, feel like every time the earth circles the sun, that we are becoming more advanced. Like the civilizations down on the surface of the earth are becoming more advanced. And part of that, I don't even know if that's true necessarily. I mean, I guess it is. It's pretty hard for it not to be. I mean, the, the Moore's law just is really central to us. You know, the Moore's law is that, I don't know what it is, every year, or every three years or something, microprocessing power would double. And that's really happened when you think of, you know, like the 1969 landing on the moon, the kind of microprocessing power they had on that spacecraft compared to what you have on your wrist and your in, in your Apple Watch is like, you know, exponential. And so uh, it's hard for us to not kind of think that the world is becoming a more advanced place. So it's very hard for us to assume that there could be any civilization that knew things that we didn't know. Um, but that also shows how deeply materialistic we are. You know what I mean? That, uh, that we don't, that we're not actually that interested in wisdom, probably. Um, you know, maybe some of us are, but we're not really interested in wisdom and advancement has nothing really correlated with wisdom. I mean, no one thinks Silicon Valley is a place steaming with wisdom, you know, just dripping with wisdom. We do think it's a place that is the engine of our advancement, you know, and is a very future oriented place. But this is what like someone like Alistair McIntyre and others have really warned us to and Charles Taylor in his own way is that really can we live good lives without some kind of tradition? Um, and, and I do think that's part of the, that's part of the faith formation trap. Like you're saying, Derek is like, if you become too much into looking in the past and like memorizing catechisms and creeds and things like that, all of a sudden it becomes irrelevant. Um, but we also know the more you just peer into the future, make it all about the future, the more you just instrumentalize it. Like there, what other purpose does it have other than as an instrument? Like, well, if you're, if your kids go through this, then they, you know. They won't be bad kids, or they, you know, won't screw up their lives, or We're something like that. We're like Holy Cub Scouts. Is kind of how I feel sometimes. You know, like we they drop the kids yeah. off, and they want us to make them better people, and then yeah. they're on with it. You know, it. Yeah, but it doesn't even have really uh, eagle. What's it? An eagle? Pa- it's not an eagle patch. What's it called? Eagle it's Scout. A, when you yeah, if you go eagle through scout. scouts all the way through, you get to the Eagle Scout. Yeah. Yeah, the black belt of of Boy Scouts. Like you know, we don't even have that. Especially in the Protestant tradition, you know what I mean? Like, I guess at least Catholics can think maybe a kid going through their confirmation will become a saint or something. I mean, we don't even have we don't even have uh, have that to to promise in its future orientation. Um, you know, um, I guess you know we used to be like you could be a missionary or you could be a great evangelist or something like that. Um, you know, so I I don't know. I think we do need some kind of tradition to to rest on, but but how? How we do that is really the challenge today, I think. I mean, there is a real sense that Christianity isn't always kind of there there it is a claim towards what is coming. And it, it is eschatological. It is apocalyptic in that sense. Um, but that is an inbreaking. And to be able to discern those signs, to be able to ready yourself for 
this future arrival of um, of the apocalyptic, you you do need the past in some ways. You do need to retrieve some things from the past, um, but that's tough. When Church Stops Working, featuring Dr. Andrew Root, is a podcast produced by me, Derek Tronsgaard. And a special thanks to our sponsor, Baker Publishing. You can grab Andy's brand new book, The Church After Innovation, which is out now on Amazon or wherever else you get your books, and look for his other titles as well. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time for another round of When Church Stops Working.